Good morning. Thank you to Kyle and to Lori uh, for the worship they've led us in this morning. I can't think of a better song uh, to walk us back into this series on Galatians that we've been running through. This is the, uh, the last sermon in that series, uh, but I can't think of a better song uh, to help us enter into uh, the message of Galatians. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom. It's beautiful words, uh, and it's true, and it's what reflect, it's what reflected here in this passionate letter uh, that Paul writes uh, to the people in that Galatian re- region, and uh, and through the Holy Scripture, through the book that we have here, uh, this gift from God that points us to Jesus, uh, words to us as well. As we get into it this morning, let's open this up in prayer. God. Thank you that you are with us. We recognize your Holy Spirit is present. It is present within us and it is present somehow mysteriously through us together as a body, as we gather. I pray that as I speak, as we uh, seek to discern truth in your word, uh, give us a sensitivity to your spirit. Help us to be shaped Uh, into people who look and act and think and sound more like Jesus as we explore uh, this letter. Help us to take these words that Paul wrote uh, to a specific situation, to a specific group, in a specific place, at a specific time, um, and yet take the universal truth, the truth that is there for us uh, in our walks today, and apply those things deeply to our hearts. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So we have been walking through uh, the book of Galatians, uh, one chapter at a time, kind of taking a a key verse or a key section of verses uh, from each chapter to sort of draw out the theme and the shape of this book uh, as we go through it. We, 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 we are, and we're looking at the, these sort of large themes that run through Galatians. It's a beautiful book. It teaches maybe, maybe some of the clearest Uh, moments in scripture teaching us about the freedom that we find uh, in salvation, what it means uh, to be justified, to be made righteous, to be freed from our sin, brought in uh, to God's family, and that these things happen not by our own doing, not by following religious systems, not by being good enough on our own, but through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death for our sins. I've been coming back to this concept throughout this series, the simple equation, salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. He's done it. It is finished. He's accomplished it. And now we come to the last part of the book, and it takes on a little bit of a different tone here than the rest of Galatians. It feels uh, like Paul is really trying to cram a bunch of different ideas in uh, to this last chapter. We move from these sort of big sweeping statements to uh, um, several more kind of condensed pieces uh, of advice that feel a little bit disconnected from each other in some ways. It's like he's sort of throwing it out in in point form at this place. Uh, It reminds me of, I've never been very good at writing by hand. I don't have a, I don't have a good, don't have good handwriting, don't have legible handwriting. My hand cramps up if I write for too long. Maybe my teachers didn't try hard enough with me to get that figured out. But that's been my whole life. 
Uh, and so, especially when I was in university and I would end up taking some of these long-form essay exams, uh, I always knew I was in for a bit, of, a bit of a hard time sitting there for three hours trying to constantly write out these essay answers uh, to these questions. And, uh, and I remember one history exam I took in particular, and it was only about an hour in, I was about one-third through this exam, and my hand was cramping. And I was going, the professor or the teacher's assistant or whoever's marking this thing at the end, they aren't even going to be able to read uh, what it is that I have to say. And so I remember writing in the margins of the exam, and I just said, I'm going point form. From here on out, you dock me whatever you have to. I'm not writing essay anymore. I'm just going to give you the points that I know you're looking for in this answer. Mark it however you need to mark it. I think I ended up with a B on that exam. But that was kind of where I was at. I was running out of time. I was running out of uh, endurance. And so that's where I went. And it feels a bit uh, like Paul uh, is moving in this direction. Uh, Paul is getting to the end. And he says, he actually says in the book, he says, look what large letters, letters I write to you uh, in my own hand. He's, he's near the end of the book. His scribe apparently is done. He's finishing it off by himself. That's maybe what I should have written in my exam. See what large letters I write to you as I use my own hand. But, but he kind of throws out these proverbs or these insights or these bits of wisdom that he wants to communicate before everything is wrapped up. And so it's got a bit of a different rhythm than the rest of the book. And it feels in some ways like it has a bit of a different focus than the rest of the book. And what I want to do today is rather than go through all of those pieces, I simply want to zoom in on one of them to give you a bit of a picture of Paul's heart here. Uh, we're going to look at uh, his, his statement in chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. This is what he says, one of his sort of statements that he's making towards the end here. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. To the one who sows, the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, if we do not give up. Part of the reason, actually, that I wanted to focus uh, on this section is because, to me, it's a little bit confusing that this shows up here in this book. Not that it's bad or that it's not true, but, but Paul, for the last five chapters, has been teaching passionately about the freedom that we find in Christ. Getting away from the law, right? Getting away from a list of here are the things that you need to do and here are the things that you shouldn't do uh, and using that as the way that we try and achieve holiness. He's been talking about freedom this whole time, and now here, suddenly it feels like he's almost introducing the idea of karma. It makes me do a double take. Is he, is, he, is he walking back on the whole point that he's made about freedom and say, actually, it is what you do that matters. It is what you do or don't do. It's a bit of a confusing thing to see here, and so I want to dig into this a little bit. If you sow to please your sinful nature, you will reap destruction. If you sow to please your spirit, you will reap eternal life. So is that karma? Is that some sort of mystical point system that we're using to get into heaven? I think we can safely say this isn't 
what Paul intends. The, the way that Paul writes his letters, he tends to follow a, a bit of a similar structure. We talked a little bit about the structure of his introductions, I think, when we covered chapter 1. But, but many of Paul's letters follow a very similar rhythm in that they start off, the first part of the letter starts by talking about what God has done for us. What God has accomplished, what God is doing, how God is working in the world, how he has worked through Jesus. And that's the most important part of the letter. That's the part that really matters. Here is what God has done. And once he establishes that foundation, then he moves to his sort of therefore. Here is what God has done. Therefore, this is what we should be doing. This is how our lives should look. Here are ways in which we should be living as a result of what God has done for us. Understand what Jesus has accomplished for us, his love for us, his grace for us, the freedom that we receive. And then he moves over and says, what's our response? How do our lives look in response? And with Paul's letters, if you only look at the response, there's a good chance you're missing or you're not getting the complete point that Paul is trying to make because his response always comes out of an understanding of what God has done. The what we should be doing only makes sense because of the why. Because of what God has done for us. And so Paul can't be saying here that doing good things is what gets us into heaven. Because it would be undermining what came before. Instead, I think what Paul is doing is he's simply reminding us of a, of a basic life principle that we all intuitively, I think, know to be true, which is very generally, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Uh, Andy Stanley actually sums this up well. He, here's, here's what he has to say about this. It's a bit of a longer quote. I've got part of it up on the screen there. Paul says here what we all know intuitively, life is connected. Where you are today is a result of decisions you have made in the past. And where you will be tomorrow is connected to what you do today and what you did yesterday. There is a relationship between your current irresponsibility and what you can expect in the days and weeks and months to come. We must realize what Paul doesn't say here. This is still Andy Stanley. He doesn't say people reap what they sow unless they ask for forgiveness. See, forgiveness doesn't actually erase what you've sown. And I run into this all the time as a pastor, he says. Someone comes to me and says, Andy, I'm doing my best. And I have to say, I'm glad you're doing your best now. But for five years, you didn't do your best. That was sowing. And now, you're reaping from those years. And you doing your best right now doesn't erase all of the sowing you did then. This principle shows up all over Scripture, actually, not just in Galatians. Dozens and dozens of times throughout the Bible. In fact, I think it's uh, Tim Keller who mentions that this principle, you reap what you sow, this is the principle that really underlies the entire book of Proverbs. Here's just a sampling from there. Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. Sometimes 
When one of us, and I was younger in our family, one of us siblings would come in crying from some ridiculous stunt that we were pulling in the backyard, and my dad would look at us, and once he made sure there were no broken bones or stitches required, he'd kind of roll his eyes, and he'd look at us, and he'd say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. (laughs) That was his line to us. That's this verse. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. The principle that is in Proverbs, also often refers to wealth or to generosity. Proverbs 11.18 says, The wicked person earns an empty wage, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a lasting reward. Proverbs 22.8-9 says, Whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, but a generous person will be blessed. Proverbs 3.10, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. These verses also apply to parenting, right? It's a well-known verse for many of us. Proverbs 22.6, Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I don't even have to tell you this, because you know it because life has taught you this, these aren't guarantees. It's not a one-to-one promise that things will always, 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 without fail, happen in exactly this way. It's not how it works. But they are good, godly, true principles. Right? If you focus on eating well and getting good rest and exercising, you'll be healthy, generally. Generally, That's true. It's good advice. But it doesn't happen that way all the time. It's not a guarantee that life is going to work that way. If you develop an excellent team culture and you've got a great proven head coach with a track record and you build up an all-star lineup of players with very few weaknesses up and down the lineup except for maybe your kicker, you tend to win Grey Cups. Is how it works. But it's not a guarantee. We'll find out this afternoon. If the things that the bombers have done, the seeds that they have sown, will result in a great cup. But generally, this is the rhythm of things. This is a crazy thing that we run into sometimes with parenting, right? Your kid's doing something dangerous, and you say, stop that, you're going to hurt yourself. And then they look at you, and they do the thing. It's the triple flying backflip holding scissors, and, and they land it. And they look at you and go, I was right and you were wrong, right? They don't say it out loud maybe, but you can see it in their eyes. You know nothing. And we go and we learn with age and maturity as parents that you can only play that game for so so long before, as my dad says, you win a stupid prize. This is how life generally works. And so Paul takes that principle of life and he applies it to the spirit. We just finished chapter 5 talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Where you drive your roots into, where you anchor yourself in, that determines the fruit that you will bear. The fruit of the Spirit is a reminder, again, I want to keep reminding us of this, reminding us of the why. It's not about fighting hard to grow good fruit. It's about getting your roots in the right place. It's, about, it's also about acknowledging an important truth, right? We have received unlimited, total Forgiveness, right? Grace upon grace from God. It doesn't matter what we've done. We are forgiven by the blood of Christ. But it also doesn't erase some of the consequences of those things. It justifies us 
before God. But those things that we did, the seeds that we have sown, they're still there. And the natural consequences of those things still exist. If someone drives a car through your house, you have the choice to forgive that person, to release them from the debt, from the guilt, from the shame. But there's still a car in your living room. These things still have consequences. To explore this a little bit, uh, I want to look into this principle of sowing and reaping. I want to I take a look at five biblical laws of the harvest. Now, this is not a list that I came up with on my own. I adapted it from uh, J.D. Greer, who's done some writing on Galatians and preached a sermon series on this a while back in his own church. I got it from him, and I think if I remember correctly, he got it or adapted it from some other place. But this is a good list that digs into sort of the natural truths of sowing and reaping that Paul is trying to get into here. And I think these things are reflected uh, in the verses uh, that we read earlier. So I want to go through these with you this morning. The five biblical laws of harvest. The first law is this. The harvest is limited to the planting. The harvest is limited to the planting. A man reaps what he sows, Paul says. And the flip side of that, I think we can follow, is that if he doesn't sow, he doesn't reap. It's a simple truth, but it's an essential one. You only harvest what you plant. It's not rocket science, right? If you don't put any seed in the ground, nothing's going to come up, or nothing that you were hoping for anyways. I think about the story in John chapter 6. It's maybe one of the clearest pictures of Scripture we have of this harvest of multiplication, of the way in which planting leads to harvest. God takes a little boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish, and he uses it to feed 15,000 or so hungry people. Jesus takes it, he blesses it, he distributes it to the disciples, and it multiplies to the point where everyone in the crowd was fed plus 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, it's an interesting question. Could Jesus have conjured that out of thin air? Could he have just made it appear? I, I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is that Jesus, who was present and active in the creation of all things, could have snapped his fingers and fish and chips would have rained from the sky. But this story illustrates something about Jesus and how he tends to work, about God and how he tends to work. God wants to work with our offering. He took the generous offering this boy gave and he multiplied it. The boy didn't give much. He didn't have much. But he did give. He had to give in order for it to be used by God. In order for what we have to be blessed, our finances, our time, our lives, we need to give these things to Jesus. He wants us to give, to offer up our resources. And when we give it away, now it's in a place where Jesus can bless it and use it. But God wants us to put that seed into the ground. God wants us to plant it. And then he will work with it. Generosity is an invitation for God to infuse blessing over and above what we have given. 
This is, this is not, we're not turning into a health and wealth church here, but this is a general principle about how God works. When we give, it gives God the opportunity to multiply blessing. The second principle is this, the second law of the harvest. The harvest comes later than the planting. Very simple principle. I, I remember being a kid and going out to plant a little garden in our backyard, and we took these seeds and we put them in the ground and we carefully covered them with dirt and we watered them, and then nothing. I went back later in the afternoon, nothing. I checked in the evening, nothing. Went the next morning, nothing. The next day, nothing. And I kept on going back and back to these seeds over the next 24, 48, 72 hours, nothing. There was no evidence that anything that I was doing made any difference. And here I was thinking, this is some big failed experiment. There was uh, a study done years ago uh, uh, where, where researchers did this study with kids and they found an incredibly strong correlation between this study uh, and those kids' success levels later in life. And the study was this, very simple. They put kids in a room and a researcher walked to a kid and gave them a treat. I think it might have been a marshmallow, but some kind of a treat. And they said, here's a candy, kid. It's yours. You can eat it. I have an errand to run. I'll be back in about 15 minutes. You can eat it whenever you want. But if you don't eat it, when I get back, I'll give you another treat. Your choice to eat it whenever you want to. It's not bad for you to eat it. But if you don't, when I get back, I'll give you a second candy. And if you've eaten it, good for you. But you don't get more candy. Kids who waited to eat that first piece of candy until the researcher came back in the room consistently grew up to be folks who had higher success in almost every measurable metric in their lives. There is something about having a long view of what we are doing in life and a long view of what God is doing in our lives. Diets and New Year's resolutions and budgets fail because we want instant, immediate results. But we have to remember, harvest comes after planting. If you're planting and you don't see immediate results, don't worry. Just wait. Persevere. Seeding happens in spring. And you need to be watchful and faithful and steady and anchored and consistent in the in-between. Paul talks about not being deceived, right? Me as a little six or seven-year-old going out to check those seeds every four hours, I was being deceived. I was getting distracted. It's an interesting word that he uses here, that word for deceived uh, or misled. The word in Greek uh, is planau, uh, and it's to be led astray. And planau is actually the word uh, that we use for English to get the word planets. And you go, how does that connect? It's an interesting thing. The Greeks, of course, used stars for navigation. They looked up in the sky. They used the stars to understand which direction they were heading, where they were supposed to be going. But some of those stars weren't fixed. Some of those stars tended to move around in the sky in a way that was different than everything else. Some of those stars couldn't be trusted. And those were the planau. Those were the planets. Because they shifted around in the sky in a way that distracted and could throw them off course if they weren't looking at the right thing. 
if we focus on moving circumstances, if we get distracted in between seeding and harvest, that's a problem. The harvest comes after the planting. We need to persevere, be patient. The third principle is this. The harvest is greater than the planting. There's this multiplication principle at work that we touched on earlier. And that's a basic principle in harvest, right? A wheat seed grows into a stalk with multiple heads on that stalk and many grains of wheat per head. A tomato seed is planted and it grows into a plant. And by my calculations, if it's a happy tomato plant, it gives you about 4 million tomatoes. This is how it works. There's a multiplication that is at effect uh, in harvesting. The choices that we make in life function like investments with compounding interest that can grow and grow and snowball to far bigger than what we ever put in in the beginning. And a word of caution, this can work in both directions. When we sow to please our sinful nature, as Paul says, we reap something much larger, destruction. If we put in and put in and put in to our sinful natures, that's going to grow and compound as well. But when we think about the multiplication of the gifts that we give God, of our giving or our generosity or our choices in life, there are two ways that I can think about this. Uh, First, there's just general multiplication here. Like that verse we read in Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing. I know if we took time for it, there would be story after story here in our congregation of ways in which people have seen their generosity, whether it's generosity with time or money or skill, people's generosity has led to a multiplied blessing. These stories are here. Many of you have lived that story. You have seen this principle at work in your lives. The other multiplying factor that happens, of course, is that sometimes when we give, the gifts that we receive back are in a far more valuable currency than any gift we gave in the first place. If I asked you the question, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a ton of money? Or would you rather be truly and fully satisfied with exactly what you have right now? I think any of us would be foolish to choose the money. Because that's in pursuit of that satisfaction that we are being offered by the other selection. That's the point of that money in the first place. I want to say, by the way, that this is good timing for this message because perhaps what you are sitting here and feeling or hearing from me is that you should be giving more money to the church. That may be what you're feeling. And, and that's a piece of this for sure. And, and if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that, then far be it for me to get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is doing with you. But we do have this super encouraging bulletin update. Some years around this time, Jake Friesen our finance chair is having heart palpitations because it's not clear exactly. Are we going to hit the budget? Are we not going to hit the budget? And we're $30,000 or $40,000 behind pace. And we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And, and, and to be clear, I, I don't think we've ever ended up with a year, not since I've been here, uh, where we gave less than we spent. But, but as a church, we sure like to make it interesting some years. We like to make a bit of a game of it towards the end of the year. And, and we sit here and go, oh, are we going to make it? Are we not? This year, that's not the story. I don't want to oversell it or Jake will start getting nervous again. But we had an encouraging fall. Our bulletin update is great. We're putting along right where we should be. So this is not a situation where I'm going to be locking the doors and having the band come up and play to the river. 
and, uh, and, and just sort of sitting here until we've reached our fundraising goals. That is not the point of this message. It's not the topic of what I'm preaching on right now. I simply want to acknowledge the truth of what Paul is bringing out in Galatians uh, and the truth that's expressed throughout Scripture. So, a couple of these laws, right? First, the harvest is limited to the planting. Second, the harvest comes after the planting. Third, the harvest is greater than the planting. And fourth, the harvest is proportional to the planting. And I noticed here that I had uh, an error on my slide. It has the same law up there again. But we're going, the harvest is proportional to the planting. There's an old fable, you might have heard it, uh, about a group of horsemen in ancient times that were riding through a desert and they crossed this dry riverbed and out of the sky, out of the sky they hear a, a heavenly voice that calls them to stop. And they obey. And the voice says to them, dismount, get off your horses and pick up handfuls of pebbles and put them in your pockets and then get back on your horses. And the horsemen follow those instructions. And the voice says, if you've done as I commanded, tomorrow you will be both glad and sorry. And so the horsemen ride on. And when the sun rises, they reach into their pockets and they find a miracle has happened. The pebbles have been transformed into diamonds and emeralds and other precious stones. And these horsemen, they remember the warning that they received, that they would be both glad and sorry. And here they are, glad they had taken the pebbles, sorry they hadn't taken more. God will multiply what we give. And again, these are common sense principles. The more that we give, the more opportunity there is for multiplication. The more that we are able to hold things in our lives with open hands, the more we are able to live and think and act as those who say, God, what I have is yours, the more opportunity God has to work with what we have sown. I think of the passion of D.L. Moody. That'll be a name familiar to many of you. D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, who said maybe his most famous quote is, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. That was D.L. Moody's quote. He lived a life trying to be somebody fully consecrated to God. And the fruit of his life continue many, many, many years later to have ripple effects uh, through North American Christianity, through the Moody Publishing House and many of the other organizations that he has worked with. When we open our lives and our wallets and our time to God, and again, this is not, I'm not talking just to the church, right? I firmly believe that this is a way, even a primary way that God has called us to live as Christians through our body as a part of this body. But I'm not saying give everything you have to the church. I'm saying live your lives open to God and what he is calling you to do. And we see that the more we give, the more God has opportunity to work with those blessings and to multiply. The final principle is this. We can't actually do anything about this year's harvest, but we can change next year's. Again, it's common sense. You right now are in a season of reaping what you sowed yesterday, and you can't actually change that. 
If you pray or have a change of heart or a change of life, there are consequences from the seeds that you planted earlier in your life. And again, this is a general principle. God works in miraculous ways in our lives. But it's generally true that if I stayed up till 3 in the morning yesterday, I should expect to be tired today. It's how it's going to work. What I did in my past is going to have an effect on my present. It's that Andy Stanley quote from earlier, right? Forgiveness is real and true and all-encompassing. We're forgiven and we're set free, but we are also going to experience the effects in our lives right now of the things that we have sown in the past. If I plant a garden full of carrots and I decide in August I'd rather have cucumbers, I'm hooped. Well, I could go to the store. But in terms of the garden analogy, I can't transform what is currently in my garden. There's carrots in there. And I'm going to get carrots when it's time for harvest. Again, this is not a one-to-one. This is not a guaranteed promise. Things in life are far more complicated than this, but it is a general principle for life. Where we are now, where you are today, is a culmination of the seeding that you have done in your life to this point. And you may be reaping the benefits of that, or you may be looking at, at a weedy field that you wish you'd taken better care of. But I think sometimes we look at the weeds in our lives and we pray to God to turn them into flowers. And what God does is he hands us seeds. Sometimes you look at the weeds in our lives and we pray to God to turn them into flowers. And what God does is he hands us seeds. And that doesn't feel like an answer to prayer sometimes. Depending on our frame of mind, it may feel like God's missed us altogether. But what it does is it positions us for a fruitful harvest in the next season, in the next stage. God comes to us and says, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. Walk with me in rhythms of grace. We can learn how to garden, how to farm, how to plant and till and fertilize and water and harvest together. I said earlier that Paul's letters are structured with the important stuff up front. What God has done for us. And then later he goes into how that affects our lives in the here and now. The important thing is that the response only works if it is grounded and rooted in what came before. So let's look at this letter as a whole. For the Galatians, for this letter we've gone through, what came before is a recognition of what Christ has done for us. The freedom that we have, both from the law and from lawlessness. In that freedom and hope, in our response to what Jesus has done for us, our understanding is secure in the family of God. Let us live generously. Let us scatter seed abundantly. Let us, in our freedom, hold our possessions and our finances and our time and our lives with open hands in service of God, recognizing the harvest that awaits us as we do. Amen? Amen.